Awesome. All right. Can you hear me? Sounds good. Um, yeah, sweet. Well, feel free to grab a Bible and, <clears throat> like Cooper said, open up to your journal. Seems like we're kind of a note-taking culture here, which is dope. Uh, well, yeah, many of you may not know me yet, um, or Cassidy, because we just moved here about a year ago. And uh, like Cooper said, we're, the, we're some campus missionaries on Eastern Washington University's campus. Such a good job. Um, we, you know, we've lived here about a year, but then this coronavirus thing happened, and it just feels like been in our house for a few months. And yeah, so you still won't know what I look like because I've got my mask. But that's all right. So uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny, Mark was like, do you want to give the message um, this week? And I said yes, and he said, okay, sweet, chapter 5. Um, and I was thinking, yeah, okay, First Corinthians, I know like the early bits, great stuff about God's wisdom and power, and, and there's some great teaching toward the end on spiritual gifts. Open it up to chapter 5 and you know, just kind of read, okay, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that pagans do not tolerate. Sweet. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. <laughs> Appreciate that. So, um, but yeah, this will be great. Uh, great section to teach on. Um, it's funny, I think it was a couple weeks ago, Mark mentioned that uh, Paul likes to offer some like constructive criticism to uh, the church in Corinth. And uh, honestly, I think here he's done offering constructive criticism. He's just about to get real blunt. Um, so we're just gonna, yeah, we're gonna get blunt today. Um, this is a doozy of a chapter, so I'm excited to look at it. Let's just, uh, let's just pray to get started. So, Lord Jesus, um, we just ask that you would open our hearts to your word today. Holy Spirit, let's pray that you'd begin new work right now um, in us. And you just timed this out um, for us to actually receive this word uh, from your Bible. So, God, we... Just say that we're open to hearing from you. We know that your word um, is sharper than double-edged sword and pierces right to our soul. And so, God, we just pray that you do that. Um, if there's something that hurts, pray that we would feel that. And, uh, God, would you just use this to um, strengthen us in our walk with you? Amen. Sweet. Well, um, hey, let's just start off by reading some of this. So, go for the first five verses, First uh, Corinthians 5, verse 1, says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you're assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So here's the thing about this chapter uh, in, in the letter to the Corinthians. Uh, it's uncomfortable, right? Do topics like this ever make you feel uncomfortable? Right? Um, do you ever feel like, is it really necessary for us to talk about this? Like, everyone knows sex is 
for a certain thing and it's sexual immorality is wrong. It's kind of like a basic thing, only a few people do. So I think that if we as a church can't talk about this, um, if our families aren't able to have these conversations, if we're not willing to get uncomfortable, then our enemy is more than happy to help us keep this sin in the dark. So I'm going to, like Cooper said, do my best to keep this PG-ish. Uh, but just fair warning, we're going to just be calling it what it is, all right? So let's get uncomfy. Um, it's really interesting to see how Paul's statement has aged. Not that it's any less relevant to us. Uh, in fact, probably more so now. <laughs> um, he calls this a kind of sin that not even unbelievers will tolerate. So while unbelievers in our world today might denounce this kind of immoral behavior, um, they don't have any sort of set of morals and ethics or hockey rules uh, that actually would stop them from doing things like this, right? So we've got to ask, who was Paul writing to? Um, who were the Corinthians? Well, the Corinthians had a fairly loose uh, promiscuous culture. Just imagine yourself walking down the street in your sandals, ancient Greece. On your left, it's a temple devoted to sex. Uh, you've got shrine prostitutes that you can sleep with um, as a form of worship to the goddess Aphrodite. So certainly it's not as bad as all that today. Well, actually, I think that the world Paul lived in was not very different from the world we're living in right now. We have sex shrines. Uh, does anyone have a computer or a cell phone? So porn, honestly, internet porn is a major problem in our world today. Through pornography, women are still being exploited and enslaved, just like they were in ancient times, so that other people, both men and women, can enjoy themselves. In case you didn't realize it, uh, porn consumption is quite common today. So I just want us to sober up a little bit. We're going to go through some statistics. Um, and you can find these, the kind of the sightings on these uh, on covenanteyes.com. It's a great website, covenanteyes.com. So as it turns out, 25, approximately 25% of search engine requests are related to sex. 35% of all downloads from the internet are pornographic. Uh, only 55% of adults, 25 and older, believe that porn is wrong. 90% uh, of teens and about 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about porn with their friends. And honestly, these stats don't get much better when we look at the church. 64% um, of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. When it comes to our children, the statistics are particularly disturbing. 51% of male students and 32% of female students first viewed porn by the age of 12. So here's the really odd part to me, though. Our culture's obsession with sex has transitioned from being a private thing that someone might do with the door closed by themselves to a completely publicly acceptable thing. What am I talking about? Well, whatever stigma sex in porn has retained, 
it hasn't stopped filmmakers from putting in their shows. Uh, I think Game of Thrones was probably the first to sort of pioneer uh, this sex position technique. Um, sex position, if you're not familiar, it's when you know, you've got an action-packed show and uh, you know, there's just there's, um, battle scenes and people fighting with swords and then you've got to deliver like, a bunch of exposition and it's about to get really boring. boring. So how are we gonna keep people's attention? Well, oh, let's just show people having sex. So this is something that I talk about a lot working with college students. Um, many Christians seem to think that watching softcore porn in TV shows is okay. I don't know my opinion. The fact that we as Christians give this a pass is absurd. How do we think this is okay? We'll come back to this later on. Uh, you know, our reality is that sexual atheism is a prevalent issue in our world and therefore in our church. The question now becomes, how do we deal with it? So when you boil down this passage and this topic, I really think it comes down to relationship. And it contains two ways. This passage contains two ways of thinking for us as a body of Christ. One is the way we do relationship with sinners inside the church. The second is the way we do relationship with sinners outside the church. Right? We're all sinners. We're Christians. There's people out there who are sinners, not Christians. I think if there's one thing I'd love for everyone to take away this morning, it's this. Our goal as believers should be that we become the most gracious and loving to sexually immoral people on the outside of the church and the least tolerant towards sexual immorality occurring inside the church. I'm just going to say that again in case you want to write it down. We need to become the most gracious and loving to sexually immoral people outside of the church and the least tolerant towards sexual immorality occurring inside the church. There's a great book called Love, Acceptance, and Forgiveness. And some of you guys may have heard of it. I've heard it mentioned here before. Um, in this book, the author, Jerry Cook, explains that love is not license, acceptance is not agreement, and forgiveness is not compromise. Love is not license, acceptance is not agreement, and forgiveness is not compromise. So you'll have to read the book to find out exactly how to do that. <laughs> Um, but there's a few things that I'd love to talk about uh, today. You know, I think a tendency for some of us in the church is to feel extremely uncomfortable interacting with people living non-Christian lifestyles. Anyone feel uncomfortable talking with someone who has a completely different set of values than you? I know I do. Um, but why? Why do, we, why do we have this uncomfortableness? Why do we act in intolerant ways toward those outside the church? Those who haven't experienced the grace of Jesus. Those who have no hope of moving beyond the sin that enslaves them. Why would we complain about depraved people or despicable people who act like they have no sense of morality? Again, I'm guilty of this myself, but do you see how ridiculous that sounds? They act like they have no sense of morality because 
They don't, and they haven't experienced the grace of God. Paul really puts this well. This is our, me- our memory verse. I'm reading out of the NIV in chapter, uh, or verse 12, later on in the chapter, he says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Telling someone to live up to a moral standard that they don't believe in, not only doesn't make sense, uh, it's giving someone an impossible feat to accomplish. The only reason any of us are ever able to live by Jesus' commands is because of the grace that he gives us to do it. Another great quote from this book, Love, Acceptance, and Forgiveness, goes like this. If people can't be healed in our congregation, where should we send them? Someone has to be the end of the line for messed up humanity. We're not in a popularity contest. Later he goes on to say, our acceptance of others will never confuse them in questions of right and wrong if our teaching and personal lifestyle establish clear standards. Guys, I don't think we have to worry about people wondering what we think of their immoral behavior. They know we don't approve. What do they need? They need to know we love them. They need to know we love them. Um, I said before, we should be the most gracious and loving people to immoral people on the outside of the church and the least tolerant toward immorality occurring inside the church. So let's talk about that. I'll preface by saying there's some nuance here as well. Uh, And that is, if someone is caught in a sin that they are seeking to get out of actively, we shouldn't be shaming them, right? Someone is genuinely seeking repentance and feels remorse over their sin, there's not really any need to force them to repent, is there? The sin that the church in Corinth was dealing with was different. Well, let me rephrase that. The reaction to the sin was very different. This man was not fighting temptation, (laughs) uh, nor were the people in the church trying to correct his behavior. In verse 2, Paul calls them out for being proud of this incestuous affair. Somehow they had gotten it into their heads that because of their freedom in Christ, it meant that they could do whatever they wanted and get away with it. They saw their freedom as free to sin, not free from sin. I, honestly, I love this letter because it's so personal. It, these just feel like real people. I mean, they were real people that Paul clearly had a relationship with. I can imagine even that he knew who it was that he was writing about and the pain that he felt writing about that. But do you see the difference in these two reactions to sin? Sin is hard to repent from. Sometimes it feels too good to stop. But there's a difference between someone who wants to stop and someone who has every intention on continuing in their destructive path. The main purpose of Paul's letter in this chapter is helping the church deal with sin inside the church. So I'm just going to reread verse 5. This uh, should both comfort and frighten us says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of, of the Lord. Doesn't sound super loving, does it? Uh, let's just continue reading. Let's read the rest of the chapter there. Starting in verse 6, he says, you're boasting. It's not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ... Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. 
Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those on the outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So, we get to verse 6, you know, and uh, we read, don't you know that a little bit of yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? And there's really only one reasonable question to ask. Why is Paul talking about baking? Well, this goes all the way back to when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. Anyone know what the Passover meant? Paul mentions Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Passover was the celebration of Israel's liberation from Egypt's oppression. When they celebrated the Passover, they celebrated it by getting rid of all the yeast in their houses and baking unleavened bread. And they had to really sweep their houses clean to get rid of the yeast, apparently. Uh, <laughs> the, you know, this image of yeast is also picked up by Jesus, uh, briefly. He tells his disciples to be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. At the time, this kind of goes right over their head. But he says this so that uh, his disciples won't fall into hypocrisy themselves. And the analogy of yeast inoculating an entire batch of dough is brilliant. In case you didn't know, yeast uh, is alive. These are little microorganisms that feed on carbohydrates, in this case, wheat. Uh, You also may or may not know that many things are accomplished by yeast pre-digesting the wheat. Uh, One of the main things, actually, is that it makes the wheat more easily digestible. In fact, uh, people with gluten issues oftentimes find long-fermented dough entirely palatable. This is why I think that the yeast analogy is just so strong for understanding Paul's concern for the church. This kind of sexual deviancy is the yeast. And if it's allowed to stay, it's going to cause more people to be affected. Not only that, the longer it stays, the more digestible, the more palatable the sin becomes. Guys, Jesus died on the cross as the Passover lamb. Get rid of the yeast. Get rid of the sin. When sin is tolerated, it becomes accepted. When it's accepted, it becomes adopted. This is why Paul speaks so intensely about the need to purge the sin. This is why I ask, why are we consuming TV shows that have explicit sexual content? Sexual sin has to start somewhere. We have to protect our hearts by first protecting our eyes. We heard Paul say earlier in this section, uh, you know, hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Really uncomfy. Doesn't sound very loving. What's up with that? So in Chi Alpha, uh, the ministry that I'm a part of, 
we have a catchphrase of sorts. It goes like this. Over my dead body, will I let you lead a stupid life? Over my dead body, will I let you lead a stupid life? Uh, to put this in perspective, <clears throat> I heard a story of a student, um, Kyle, a small group leader, who saved the life of a guy he was trying to disciple. Now, this guy had a problem with alcohol, uh, as many college students do. He got drunk this particular night, and somehow a small group leader had found out about it. And the small group leader drove to the bar where his friend was and told him, hey, I'm driving you home, get in the car. So this inebriated small group member got a bit angry at this, tried to storm past him in order to drive himself home. Uh, this particular small group leader was committed to the phrase, over my dead body will I let you lead a stupid life. He decided that the best thing to do with his friend, who fully intended on driving himself home while intoxicated, was to punch him in the face as hard as he possibly could. He did so quite effectively and knocked him clean out. <laughs> then he dragged his body to his car and drove him home and tucked him into bed. When someone's life is on the line, extreme tactics are just more justified, right? When someone is threatening their own spiritual life, as well as the integrity of the church, harsh measures need to be taken. I said before, I, I love this, this letter to the Corinthians because it feels like real people. There's like a story that you can trace through. Uh, and the amazing thing about this story in the Corinthian church is that we have a follow-up letter from Paul, a part two. Um, and we can assume that the Corinthians took Paul's advice and expelled the man from their church for the destruction of his sin. Um, this method apparently worked, because in 2 Corinthians 2, we read Paul's letter instructing them in this way. He says, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Now, this could, this could also be a case, another case, where they had to uh, expel someone from their church. But it does seem like the goal was accomplished here. Anyone feel uncomfortable about kind of guilting someone into repentance? Paul gives the church authority to do that. If one of us doesn't feel guilty about a particular sin we're committing, it's up to the rest of us to make them feel guilty. If they're showing that they want to repent and are struggling to do so, that's a different story. There's no need to shame them. They already feel ashamed. The story of the Corinthian church is one of love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Love that speaks the truth when it's hard. Acceptance that those outside the church must experience before they will pass through these doors, and forgiveness for the one who seeks repentance and needs to experience the incredible power of Christ's forgiveness. So as we wrap up this morning, uh, we may find ourselves in different positions. Maybe we're in the position of needing to love someone outside the church, someone who desperately needs to experience the grace of Jesus. Maybe we're in the position of needing to hold someone accountable to a sin they're committing. There might be a difficult conversation ahead. Are you willing to have it? 
possible that you might find yourself in the position of someone who needs to repent from sin. Have you processed this sin with God and with someone you trust? Do you have someone that you can confess to? And have you taken steps for someone to hold you accountable? If not yet, I encourage you to do so before the day is over. Uh, Let's pray to close. Lord Jesus, um, you've given us your word and you just don't pull punches. And you tell us exactly how much you care about us, how much you want us um, to be free from this sin. And so God, I just pray for courage for our church. Uh, Pray for courage to have those conversations. Um, Courage for us to interact with and get to know and love people outside of our church who don't live by the same standards as we do. Uh, And God, I pray for the courage to repent if that's needed. Lord Jesus, would you appropriately fill our hearts with guilt? And would you also help us to experience your incredible forgiveness? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.